Turning your Bibles this morning to 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4, starting in verse 7. Dismiss the children at this time, second grade and under. do well. Do well. Nice job. First John chapter 4 verse 7 through 12. I've entitled this sermon this morning, A Love That the World Does Not Know. Let's read. Love, let us love one another for love is from God and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God for God is love. By this, the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us. And he sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. As Shane said earlier, this passage this morning brings us back to the theme of love, to love one another. It's a a major portion of John's text here. And this isn't obviously the first time that we've addressed it, or John has addressed it. John addressed it back in, he developed the theme back in chapter 2, verses 7 through 17, in which he writes about the commandment to love. How it was commanded in the Old Testament to love and how Christ, when he came, he made it afresh. He made it anew. He showed it what it should have been and all. He, he made it perfect. He was the perfect love from heaven. And John says in verse 10 of chapter 2, the one who loves his brother abides in light and there is no cause for stumbling in him. So the one who is in the light loves his brother. The one who is in dark does not. Then in chapter 3, verses 10 through 14, he comes back to the subject of love. He just circles back, and I hate using that term, but that's the only thing I know to do. He comes back to that, and he, and he drives the nail deeper and deeper. And so he, he, he addresses it, love as being the evidence of belonging to the family of God. We are a new creation. We serve a new master. Our father now is, 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 is God the father, not Father Satan. We serve a new master, and and our love for others is an evidence of our new creation. It is an evidence of our adoption into the family of God. So it's a theme, again, John keeps coming back to, and he he drives the nail deeper and deeper in our our minds and our hearts so that that we we understand what it is he's trying to get at. He he anchors the the anchor into the clay, into the, the deep foundation so that we know how to love and why we are to love. You see, it's not that John was some sappy guy full of uh, just speech out of a romance novel. it's, it's, It's that he wants to understand that love is the real test of truth. Love is the real test to see if God is in us or is he not. We can know all the scripture there has to be. We can know everything about theology, we can have all the knowledge there is, we can be the most orthodox person there is, but if we don't love, then we don't show evidence of a changed heart, is what John tries to say here. One author called it a synthetic Christianity, which is nothing but a placebo, and it's based on mere profession of God and a mental assent to a set of theological propositions. But as we've talked before, mere profession, it does not save anyone. Even the demons believe that Jesus is the Son of God, Throughout the epistle, John gives various tests, as Shane referred to earlier, is that we may truly know that we're saved. Uh, the, the whole epistle was written so that we may know who we are in Christ and so that we, our joy may be fulfilled. Some of the tests are doctrinal, or you could say theological. What's your view on sin? What's your view on Christ? And that is vitally important. We must get that, for we must believe the right things, for apart from them we have nothing at all and we have no standing before God. But again, the question comes to us this morning is, is that the most vital test? 
It is possible to get theology right, and yet, as Martin Lloyd-Jones says, be utterly devoid of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and of the love of God in your heart. What do I mean by that? Or what does Martin Lloyd-Jones mean by that? He pulls from Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, where Paul says, If I speak with the tongues of mankind and of angels, but I do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all the faith so as to remove mountains... But do not have love, I am nothing. And if I have give away all my possessions to charity, and if I surrender my body so that I may glory, but I do not love, then it does no good for me. See, you can be so firm on your orthodoxy, but if your orthopraxy does not match that, your conduct, it, you are not in Christ, you are not in God, and you do not love the brethren. Paul says you are a clanging symbol. He says that you are, you are nothing. There is no good for you. That's why John, he gives us the moral test to, to offset the theological test. We have to get it all right. We have to have the moral test and the ethical test. The, the, the ethical test being, well, the moral test being the obedience. Do I obey? The ethical test is, do I love? Do I love? Well, if you love, you obey. If you obey, then you demonstrate love. It's the different sides of the same coin. Salvation evidences itself in love. In fact, I would say and I would argue is that love is the ultimate and the most important test of all three of them. Amen. So here we find ourselves today, John presenting us once more with the ethical test of love. In Romans chapter 5, Paul says that God has, has poured out his love into the hearts of believers. It's as if the Hoover Dam opened up and zipped open wide and poured out all its waters. as that's how God's love has been poured into the heart of the believers. It's been lavished upon us. And so the question before us today is, is do we possess the God-given love that John is speaking of here today? Is love a chief characteristic of your life? Or are you devoid of the love of God? Are you devoid of the love for others? Are you a mere professor, not a possessor? Do we, true children of God, this morning find ourselves loving others despite all things? If we're not, why not? I believe John, he gives us three reasons this morning. Three reasons, very simple reasons, but so profound. So much theology is wrapped up in these verses this morning. He gives us three reasons of why we ought to love one another. I want you to see first the source. The source. Uh, the, we should love one another because God is the true source of love. Look with me in verse 7 through 8. Beloved, let us love one another. And you can circle each time he says love one another. You can circle that. that that's, that's very important. For love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God, and he knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. John, here in verse 7, he addresses the beloved. In the Greek, it is the divinely loved. He, he addresses those, he writes to those who have been loved and are continually to be loved. He, he says to those who are divinely loved, let us love one another. I want you to note first that John does not say this in, as a command. He does not do this in the imperative mood. He, he doesn't say you must love one another. But he gives it as an exhortation. He urges the believer to do that. And, and why is that? Because we've said over and over again, John is not getting on to these believers. John is, he is, he is very pastoral in this letter. And, and he, he wants to minister this doctrine of assurance to the saints who have been shaken up by these false teachers. And, and you don't have assurance by working harder. John wants the believer to look, what he wants to do is, is, remember, who we are in Christ. He wants you to look deep at the foundation of why you were saved, who you are in Christ. Why is it that a Christian would obey in the first place? We obey because of our new nature, because of our new standing before God, because of who Christ is and what Christ has done in our lives. He's changed our emotions. He's changed our will. We love because our affections have been changed and our will that follows that, those emotions. But those emotions, they're not fickle. They, they follow something that is true. So that's what he wants us to drive to, is just drive down to that theology and understand why we love today. So he, he exhorts the believer, and he urges them, rather than he commands them to, to, to love. That, there's a difference there. The, the, love, the word that he uses here, the Greek word is the word agape. 
We, we, we're very familiar with that word. It, agape love is a love that is habitual. It's a love that endures, a love that commits, a love that, that sacrifices. It's a love that imitates Christ. It's a love that gives without getting or wanting. It's a love that commits to the object no matter how ugly the object is. Now, I love to duck hunt. I ask my wife. I love it. I love to crappie fish. Mr. Rick, he's not back there, right? We love to crappie fish. I found out this morning Elaine loves hippos. <laughs> she loves hippos. Y'all have to ask her about that later. But I also love my wife, and I love my kids. I love my church. I love my stepmom. I love my mother. I love my father. And I love Christ. Amen. You see, there's different degrees of love that we have this morning, that we understand love's in. There's different degrees of meaning. Unfortunately, the term love in the modern day today has become sort of smeared. It's the love which the world knows today. It draws its energy from emotions. But as the energy source, emotions, they come and go. They're, they're fickle. They, they wane. It's, it's an eros kind of love. It's a, you hear the word there, but it's, it's a love that tries to possess something or someone. Uh, uh, and, and, it, and it's characterized by, by romanticism of sorts. In fact, some authors today in Christianity, they, they characterize their love as, for Christ as this type of eros, sickening romanticism love. It's that Jesus is their boyfriend of some sorts. But it, this, this type of eros love basically asks the question, what can I get out of this relationship for my personal gain? The world knows only love in the context of lust and possession and gain. But an agape love is not driven by a fickle or unreliable emotional love. It's a love that lasts, that has a genuine desire for the good of others, with no concern for the cost to oneself. And John says, look at who we're to love. He says, one another. That's, that's the church. That's believers here. That we, are to love the, we are to have a, an agape type of love for the brethren. We're to be patient. We're to be long-suffering towards the brethren. We are to show grace to the brethren. We are to rebuke in love. We are to exhort in love. We are to discipline in love. We are to encourage in love. We are to have that same type of love that Christ had for the disciples. The same type of love Christ had for Peter when he denied him three times in the garden. He says this love one another, it's to love them whether they're lovable, and here's the key, or whether they're not. And it ultimately requires a self-denial. And this type of love desires the best for the other individual. And the only way that we can truly love like this is by divine enablement. The world, it does not love like this. It has an eros type of love. You may see phileo love at times, but it cannot have an agape type of love. It cannot have that type of love without being born again, and we'll get into that in a second. Paul, he says in Romans chapter 13, verse 8, he says, Owe nothing to anyone except what? To love one another. The only thing that we're allowed to continually owe to one another is what? Love. That's what we are continually to do, is to owe someone divine love. D.L. Moody, he says, A man may be a good doctor without loving his patients, a good lawyer without loving his clients, a good geologist without loving science, but he cannot be a good Christian without love. The question before us today is, is, do you love one another? Do you love today with this type of love? It's natural to love those who speak well of us or who are in the same sect. Maybe they even have the same political beliefs, you know. That, that's, a, that's easy to love those people who have those same type of uh, intricacies that we like, that we have something in common or the same desires. But the question before us is, is, do we love those who may not have those same desires? Do we love those who reprove us in love? Do we love those who tell us of our faults? Do you love those who the world sees as evil, who are hated and despised by man for what they believe? Do you love those who are committed to Christ, yet maybe they don't have the same liking that you do? Do you pray for that person? Do you sit with that person? Do you go and seek out that person? Do you go find that person who may be sitting on the back row or something that may not have anything in common? Is that the type of love that characterizes us as Christians today? As Beaver Baptist believers, or as believers in Christ who are under Beaver Baptist Church, do we love like that today? Do you have a sense of compassion for your brothers and sisters? You should. But that's the debt you owe them. 
that you can never fully repay. That pursued in the Christian life, that's the mark of a true believer. Note, I want you to note, John then gives the reason why we are to love. He, he says for, and that's a, uh, the Bible people that have studied up under me is, is we, we circle those words for. It's a term of explanation. In fact, it's a small word, but it's been said that the door of theology swings upon small hinges. And for is that word, and, and I would believe that this, upon this word the theological argument hinges this morning. He says, for love is from God. He, here is the true source of our love. It is the wellspring of our of perfect love. It is where love uh, bubbles up from or comes down from. That is, that is the true source is God. We are to love one another no matter the person's character or situation or disposition because love flows from God. Everything, everything that is good comes from God. We learned last week what was coming from God, right? Good spirits, little children, uh, good theology. All these things come from God. Another thing that comes from God is love. So here's what John's saying is, is, you know, we ought to love one another. For when we love one another, we are more and more like God. Amen. The Puritan pastor Seth Payson, he says this about those who love God. If we love the original, we shall love the resemblance. If we love the parent, we shall love the children that resemble him. And we shall love them, not only for their likeness to the parent, but for the relationship to them. John, he goes on, he says, everyone who loves is born of God. Note that that doesn't mean that every human being who loves is born of God. He, he speaks specifically talking about the agape type of love. The unregenerate, they do not love like this. They do not have a love like this. It's only those who are born of God who have this type of love. And the reason we love like God is that we are born of God and we, are, we have his essence in, 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 in of a God whose essence and nature is love. That, that's what we, we have. It's been poured out in us. John says in verse 1 of chapter 3, See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. We learned that bestowed was this alien type of love. It was otherworldly. The world does not know this type of love because it is, it is otherworldly. It has been poured out from heaven. And this is what regeneration does. It unites a hostile, self-loving, spiritually dead, selfish heart with God's living, loving heart, so that his life becomes our life and his love our love. That's why we must be regenerated. Note, born is in the perfect tense, signifying the permanent effect of the new birth. What this means is that everyone God has saved in the past continues to give evidence of the fact that in the present and will continue to do so in the future. So God habitually loves, and we have been born of God. Follow the argument. He habitually loves. We've been born of God. We too should, what, habitually love. We start, as Shane said we, a couple weeks ago, we start to resemble the parent, <laughs> whether good or bad. <laughs> we start to resemble the parent. This is good, right? Because <laughs> the parent is not sinful. And so we, we don't just claim to have God dwelling in us, within us. We demonstrate our being born of him by looking like him. And ultimately, in John's argument here is we love others. But it doesn't just stop there at being born again. He says what? And knows him. To love one another is evidence of spiritual knowledge, that we really know God. The more we love and manifest that love, the more we grow in the knowledge of God, and the more we, and, and the more we grow in the knowledge, the more we love like he loves. As a babe in Christ, you didn't know much about God, did you? You, you only knew certain things, enough to, for salvation. You knew you had to repent and believe. You knew you were a sinner. You knew that Christ uh, will save you from your sins and save you from the wrath of God. You knew those things. But that's about it. But as we commune with God, as we fellowship with one another, as we read our Bibles and as we pray, what happens? We grow into a, a more intimate knowledge with God. Yes. We start to know Him. Yes. We, 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 there's something between knowing, knowing something of someone and actually truly knowing someone. There's a difference there. In fact... This is eternal life. John 17.3 says, This is eternal life that they may what? Know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So what we should see in the Christian life is that the more we commune with God, the more knowledge, our knowledge increases of Him, and the more and more we know Him and His character, this in return drives us to be more like Him. This is why theology is so important. Each one of us here this morning is the theologian. 
Each one of us has our view upon God. But the thing about it is, is the more I commune with Him and the more I know Him personally, the more I know His attributes, the more and more I know He loves, and I cannot help but love one another because I know who He is. That's why your theology has to be grounded in the Bible. That's why your theology continues to rise. It doesn't wane. It doesn't come born again, and that's it. No, you want to know God. That's why it's important to be here on Wednesday nights and Sunday mornings and to study your Word. Because the more we know Him, the more we develop our character just like Him. John, he starts off with a positive affirmation, but he quickly goes to a negative warning. This is what good teachers do. Verse 8, he says, The one who does not love does not know God. That is in direct contrast with those who love God and have the capacity of experiencing love. John says, The one who does not know God, does not love, does not know God. Meaning this, those whose lives are not characterized by love for others are not Christians, no matter what they claim. And in the Greek... He, he, there's an absolute negation. The not and there is an absolute negation, meaning, John says, this individual absolutely does not know God because he does not love. The Jewish religionists of Jesus' day, as well as the false teachers referred to here in this letter, knew a lot about God, but they did not really know him. They did not love their people. They left the church in shambles. The absence of God's love in their lives revealed their unregenerate condition as conclusively as did their perverted theology. There's no difference today in the churches, is it? We have so many people here, not here but other places, that profess to be Christians, profess to know God, but yet love is not an attitude nor is it a practice in their life. Giving comes with demands, a need to return for some tithe. Encouraging words are not in their vocabulary. Love for their fellow believers has failed. Words are without actions. There's no concern for the lowly. Maybe this describes you today. John says here, if you don't possess love, then you don't possess God. Amen. Only those who have been born again can love this way. Right. Have you been born again today? Do you know God? Yes. 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 At the end of verse 8, John gives the reason as to why we, the one who doesn't love doesn't know God. He says, for God is love. Again, note the term of explanation. They can't know God because they don't have the power to manifest the quality of love which is God is, nor do they want to. They aren't His. When I preached a couple of weeks ago on chapter 1, and God is light, remember we talked about that, and, and in Him there is no darkness. John went on to state that those who are in true fellowship with God, they don't walk in darkness, they walk in the light. And the same thing can be applied here is that those who know God, they love, they, they characterize by love, but those who do not love, uh, know Christ, they do not love. Right. It's the same thing. When, when he says God is love, it's more than love is from God. It's more than merely an attribute of God. It's his very nature and being. God actually defines love. Because God is love, love overflows from Him. Everything He does is in love because that is what He is. He is the source. He is the origin. He creates in love. He rules in love. He judges in love. He saves in love. And He pours His wrath out in love. This truth cannot be divorced from His character. Because God is love, He reveals Himself to mankind. He, and more importantly, He reveals Himself through Scripture. Because God is love, He has given us the Bible so that we may know him. He, he, because he, he, could have, he could have withheld that. He, could, he didn't have to do that, but he, in his love, he has given us the words. He, he reveals himself in holiness. Because he's love, he, he lets us know that we have sinned against him. Because he is love, he, 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 he doesn't leave us to the consequence of our sins. Because God is love, he offers eternal life and he provides a remedy for our sin. What magnificent love. And John says, again, God is light. And what do we say? God, the light was what? A synonym for salvation, for eternal life. And John said that this, life, this light came into the world in the form of Jesus Christ in which to give eternal life. But get this this morning. The sending of the light into the dark world to seek and save those who were lost was ultimately rooted in the Trinitarian Godhead's love for one another. The reason we're saved this morning is because God loves. 
our salvation is wrought out of the perfect love of the Father has for the Son and the Son has for the Father. It's rooted in the fact that in eternity past, God the Father set his affectionate love upon you and I, and in time he sent his Son as a ransom to redeem us and to bring us into fellowship with him. And the, the Spirit, he regenerates precisely the people for whom the Father set his affectionate love upon and, and whom Jesus offered his atoning death. What love that might be. When you receive the love of God, you're receiving the same love that was in the Trinitarian Godhead in eternity past. It's the same love that God chose us before the foundations of the world. It's the same love that drove Christ to the cross in order to redeem his people. It's the same love that the Father has for the Son and the Son has for the Father. In fact, it's the same love that God gives that is the answer to Jesus' prayer in the high priestly prayer in John 17, 26, when he says, I have made your name known to them and I will make it known so that the love of which you loved me, what? May be in them and I in them. The same love that the Trinitarian Godhead had for itself. If you were born again today, it is in you. Amen. It's that great, merciful, unmerited, free act of love that chose us in an internal decree that was entirely free, not based on anything that we could ever do, not based on what he foresaw in us, but that he, he, he made us alive when we were dead in our trespasses, and not only made us alive, but he raised us up with Christ, and he seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. This is the love of God. Amen. The one who freely gives. And this is the one who dwells within each one of us who are believers this morning those who are in Christ, who bear light and who love in the manner God loves. Not that we are just to live, love, but love how he loves. That's freely, with no conditions upon it. We can't start our thoughts off this morning with, I'll love this person if dot, dot, dot. Does not work that way. That's not how God loved us. That's not the love we were saved in, and that's not the love we were called into. Jonathan Edwards says in his essay, and if you get a chance, read this essay, Heaven is a World of Love. He says, we are not to consider the loveliness of the object when we consider whether to love or not. If God had considered the loveliness of the object, you and I would not be here today. God gave his unending, abounding love to those who were his enemy, to those who were dead in sins and trespasses, to those who deserve hell and his wrath, and this perfect love now is in his children. John writes in chapter 4, verse 19. Shannon will get to this next week, but it can't be, we can't skip over this. We love because what? He first loved us. It's a reminder that you were the object of God's love when there was nothing in you that was lovable. I want you to see the second reason John gives that we should love one another, and that is the display. Verses 9 through 11, the display. Look with me, starting in verse 9. By this the love of God was manifested in us, that God sent his only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Amen. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. It's been said love has accompanying actions. Love just can't be spoken. It must be accompanied with actions. It can't sit still. It has hands and feet. The desire to love is reinforced by those actions. John, he doesn't just merely sit here and say God is love or that love is from God. He, he reminds us of the greatest act of love God ever performed and that was sending of his son into the world so that we might live through him. John says by this, pointing to what follows, he says by this the love of God was manifested in us. That word manifested, in the Greek it means to make clear, to put on full display, to be made public. It is the opposite of to hide or to cover up. And, and so what was it that was made a public affair? What was it that was made and put out for display? It was none other than Jesus Christ who came to this world to seek and save those who were lost. That is the this. That, that sounds so familiar to us. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. He sent him into a world of depraved sinners. He, he sent the one-of-a-kind Son from heaven. Noted, created things don't come from heaven. They, don't, they aren't sent from heaven. He was coexistent, eternal with the Father. 
he, the, the loving God had sent the crowning jewel of the Trinity to earth through a miraculous virgin birth on a rescue mission to save his bride in which he was promised to him from the foundations of the world. Christ, very man, very God, he took on flesh and he walked among his creation. The text says God did this in his infinite immutable love. Look here, you can circle this, so that we might live through him. Yes. You say, what does that mean? Why do I need to live through him? I'm living today, I'm living right now, we have breath in our lungs, knees hurt a little bit, back hurts, but I'm living. It's because outside of Christ, before we came to Christ, we were dead. Yes. Dead, dead, dead in our sins and trespasses. We were in enmity with God, and we deserved the wrath of God. We were unable to love perfectly. We are depraved human beings. Every one of us is going to die physically unless we're raptured. But as a result of the curse of Adam, and if you remain unrepentant in your sins, you will also die an eternal death. For the word says... For the wages of sin is death. Outside of Christ, you are not just to yourself. You are either in Christ or you are either in Adam. One way or the other. And the scripture says that in Adam all die. From birth, you were spiritually dead, unable to love perfectly, unable to respond to God, unable to commune with Him, unable to know Him, unable to obey Him rightly, unable to abide in His word and His will. You're unable to come before God with petitions. You're unable to save yourself. That's what he says in verse 10. Here's what he says. In this love, not that we loved God because you didn't. I didn't. But that he loved us. Amen. And he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. This is why God sent Christ, so that we may be made alive. It's Christ who makes us alive. It, and it gives us this eternal life which sets our hearts ablaze and sets our hearts upon a path of communing and, and knowing God. And now that we've been made alive, we live only to face the physical death that is before each one of us, not to ever face the spiritual death that we could have ever faced if we hadn't repented and believed. And John says in his gospel that you have eternal life, everlasting life. You have it now. It's not something for the future, it, though it is. But he says you have it now, present tense. We have eternal life. And he says eternal life is that you know God. The term propitiation. <laughs> I'm glad Missy's here this morning. But we've seen it before in chapter 2. It's a, it's a term that means to appease or to satisfy Note that if your Bible translates it any other way, it's actually doing you a disservice. I would take that and I would write propitiation next to it. For it is a term we need to resurrect and understand. It, it, Missy, she jokes all the time because as I, I presented the gospel message to a bunch of third, fourth, and fifth graders, <laughs> and, and that seems crazy. But the more and more we start to understand about propitiation in this term, the more and more we need to understand that it is vital to the gospel message. It needs to be in every one of our vocabularies. Propitiation is so important. Here's why. I know you like illustrations. I'm not an illustration kind of guy, so I had to lift this one, but I thought it was very good. It's the illustration of a vehicle coming down a street. It's speeding down the street, and there's a child in the street. And this vehicle will hit this child. You know that this vehicle is going to slam into this child. You see the child and you jump in front of the speeding car. You, you, uh, you, uh, you're hit by the car. The, the, the child is saved. And, and, but yet you can say that you propitiated the energy. You took the full force of the car. Paul says that God put forward Christ as a propitiation. And on the cross, God poured out His holy, just wrath upon Christ. And Christ absorbed, propitiated the wrath of God. Yes. And, and we said, we said that, why, why, we say, why, do I, why do I want to change that? Why do you say it may be a controversial term? Because of this, uh, propitiation means to appease and anger God. But outside of Christianity, that people, other religions have turned this into somehow that we have appeased an annoyed, angry God, or we have persuaded or coaxed God not to exercise his wrath. But therein lies the issue with the illustration. We need to understand this clearly this morning, that not only was God the driver of the vehicle, but here's, where the, here's where the illustration breaks down. He was the one who got in the way of the vehicle. 
Not only was he the driver, but he was the one who propitiated the energy. Jesus on the cross, he didn't persuade God to stop being an angry God and start loving us, but rather in love, God sent Christ to the cross. And yes, God's wrath did abide upon us before you become a Christian. His wrath was upon us. And outside of Christ, His wrath is upon you. But His love did not start at the cross. His love began in sending Christ to the Son. If you don't get anything else this morning out of this sermon, get this. God doesn't love you because Christ died for you. Jesus died for you because God loves you. I'll say it again. God doesn't love you because Christ died for you. He sent Christ to die for you because he loves you. That is the thrust of the text. This is the clearest manifestation of love that anyone could put forward. That's exactly what Romans 5, 8 says. But God demonstrates his love to us that while we were yet sinners, absolutely. Not while we were good or innately good or, man, I was a good person. No, you were dead in sin, but yet he, you were at enmity with God. And he says, I died for you. That's the love. That he's, that's what he's trying to put here. God's free, spontaneous love and sacrificing his son is the ultimate model of love for us. It's a model of selfless sacrifice. Verse 11, beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Here's the so what of John's argument. Here's the therefore. John calls us again to love one another because why? We've seen, we've tasted, we know God's great love he has for his children when we understand that there was nothing innately in us. That just shoots my love for him for the roof. I want to love like he does. I want to love you because of what he's done for me. It should propel us into a next century of love. He uses the term if. It would be better translated since. Since God loved us this way, what does he say? We ought to love one another. The word ought in the Greek means to owe a debt to someone. We owe love to one another. Just as Paul says, John and Paul, the writers are just alike. They know. They know exactly what they're talking about here. We owe love to one another because of what God has done for us. There is a debt we pay one another. The question this morning is, is this the love we are witnessing in Christianity today? Think about our own church. Is this the love that we witness in our own church this morning? If Paul was to write a letter to us, such as the Thessalonians, remember what he wrote? You love well. Would he write that same thing to us this morning? Would he write that you sacrifice well for one another? You love each other well, despite the other person? Are we willing to sacrifice our loves for one another? Are we willing to, to, be, to model Christ in his death? John three, or John, 1 John 3.16, we know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for who? The brethren. One author said it like this, our duty to love is demanded by the immensity of the sacrifice of the Father in the giving of his Son. I want you to see third, and finally, the reflection. We're to love because of the source, which is from God. We're to love because of the display of Christ. And now John gives us one more reason why we're to love one another, and that is God's children are to be a reflection of his great love. Look with me, verse 12. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. John says no one has seen God at any time. That's a statement of fact. The, the word seen is from the Greek word theiomai. It, it, it means it's where we get our word theater from. It, it, and it implies a careful observing, a, a close scrutiny of examination. Why does he say this? Well, no one has ever seen God in his, in his utter unveiled glory, in his majesty, in his essence. Why? You'd be consumed like a fire to a moth. So, if that's true, how are people supposed to see God's glory? How are they supposed to see God and His love? How are they going to know His power and His glory? Well, the text says, we love one another because God abides in us, 
And not only is he abiding in, his love, in us, but his love is perfected in us. When he says abide in us, that's the present tense. It means that God is continuing with us in his life, and his life is manifest in us when his people love one another. There is a true experience of God when his people love one another. Note that this is a Trinitarian work. God the Father loved us, he loved us, and he sent the Son, and the Holy Spirit resides in us so that he perfects us, and he abides in us. This is a Trinitarian work. Perfection here means to bring to full maturity. Love ultimately reaches its intended goal, the love of the other believers. That's our intended goal is that we love one another. So what's the point he's trying to make? It's by God abounding or abiding in us and perfecting love in us that the world will see who God is. God will be put on full display by and through his people. How great to know that God did not only send his beloved son to to die and be a a, a propitiation for our sins and to give us forgiveness and to make made right with him. That's important. But it's it's a so that we might live through him. And it's beyond that. God actually abides in us. And as he does, he perfects his love in us. And he does not, not so much by he does it externally, though that's part of it, but it's internally. That's how he perfects us. Here's what I mean. Show me a Christian man or woman who's loving their brothers and sisters in Christ in spite of everything that is true of them. And in that love, you see the demonstration of the love of God in a human soul. You are being perfected to love the bride. Lloyd-Jones says, God has so dealt with them that he has made of them people like himself. And John says in his gospel that no one has ever seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. Who is him? Christ. Christ came and he showed the love of God. He showed the love of the world. But guess what? He was only here for 33 years. He only did it for 33 years. Who did he pass the torch on to? The apostles. The apostles uh, pass it to who? The church. We are, we make the invisible visible. We manifest his glory. The church has the great privilege in being perfected to make him known. And how is it that we make him known? John, in his gospel, says this, chapter 13, verse 34 and 35, By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have what? Love for one another. The unseen God becomes seen in the love of believers. When we love like we should, when his love is perfected in us, we reveal what? That he abides in us, and we reveal God to the world. John, the writer of this epistle, is saying that your love, your practical commitment, your selfless, self-giving love to one another is a standing witness to the world of the love of God. The world can't see God in his majesty and honor, but he can see you and see God through you. You are a reflection of God. What a great, magnificent, just uh, how, he, how he uses us. It's so amazing. What love. The world sees the love of God in the way we relate to one another. We make the invisible visible. Dads and moms, this means that you have the ability to make the visible invisible, the invisible visible to your children. Husbands, you have the ability to make the invisible visible to your wives. Wives, you have the same ability to make what is invisible visible to your husbands. Church, you have the ability this morning to make the invisible visible to your neighbors, to your friends, to your loved ones, and to your coworkers. Amen. The question today for us is, have you made God visible in your life? Have we done that as a church? And we do that by loving each other, loving each other well. In conclusion this morning, John, he assures us that if we love the brethren, then we can have assurance in God, and in our salvation. This way, and that is the very fact that I do love my brothers and sisters in Christ and that I'm capable of loving them is in and of itself evidence that God is within me because God is the true source of love. And apart from the love of God in me, I could not love my brothers and sisters in Christ. In summary, we who are of God love God and we love men. Couple of things just to think about this morning as far as application. We've applied it numerous ways, but a couple of things I want to think about. Three things as we close. 
We think about loving one another, reflecting upon these things. And first of all, is love does not harm someone. Paul says in Romans 13 that love does no harm to a neighbor. Literally, love does not keep on working evil. It's incompatible. It's like oil and water. Real biblical love doesn't wrong someone. It doesn't dishonor. It doesn't slander. It doesn't gossip, nor does it take, nor does it steal, nor does it covet, nor does it abuse someone or disrespect someone. Love doesn't harm, doesn't do harm to anyone. John, he, he speaks of the one another in these passages. And that, that is in the context of the local church and fellow believers. You say, well, why didn't he address the world? Because if we can't love rightly in our church, we can't love the world. We can't love them. It starts here. So if we can't get this right, we certainly can't get the world right. If we can't love those who are in, 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 uh, in common with us, then we certainly can't get those who are not in common with us. But our love as believers, it does go out to a world. It does do that. We are, we are, that's why hospitals are, are made in his name. That's why schools are made in his name. That's why we go out and we, we, we send missionaries all over the world because we love them. We clothe them. Love doesn't do harm. Number two, when harmed, we still love. When harmed, we still love. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 43, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you prove yourselves to be the sons of the Father who is in heaven. Amen. Maybe this morning, maybe you're finding someone hard to love. Maybe there's someone here in this church today that's hard to love. I mean, we all have different attitudes. We can be prideful. We can slander. We can disrespect. We're just prideful people. But maybe you've been hurt, and maybe you find it hard to love that person. John says, you love them anyways. You love them beyond that. You, you love them because you are in debt to them. You owe them this. If you're having trouble loving someone this morning, remember that God loved you in your worst, in your, in your, in your, your vileness as an enemy. He loved you, and that's the type of love we should have for one another. That's what drives us. God calls us this morning to, to love the same standard of love as he had for us. If you are a child of his, then you must be a channel for his love to flow to those who may not be very lovable. That's hard to do. But we, we, we lift it up to him. If, if, this, is, if this describes us, we, we repent and we say, God, I'm sorry. Forgive me. And then what do we do? We go to that person and say, I'm sorry for acting this way. I'm sorry for slandering you, or I'm far, sorry for, for having this attitude because you slandered me. Number three, we confront, because we love, we confront sin. Because we love, we confront sin. Within the church community, if someone is living in sin, we confront that person and bring about correction via rebuking and reproving. We are called as the church to hold each other accountable, and we are called to engage in biblical church discipline. To the world, this doesn't seem loving, but to silently ignore people who are in sin is a serious danger to themselves and to the church, and it is actually not loving at all. Love confronts. Love rebukes. Love reproves. Love warns. Now that's within the church. But to those outside of the body of Christ... One of the best ways to manifest God and to love someone is that we bring them the good news of Jesus Christ. We make the invisible visible. This is the most loving thing that you can do for a lost person. We're called to make known to a lost world the same wondrous love that sent Christ to the cross. May we show our love this morning and this week for one another by first reminding of ourselves of the gospel and then going and we sharing it with those of the lost world. That's what we do. We make the invisible visible. And to the unbelievers this morning, to those who do not know Christ, the most loving thing that I can tell you this morning is that you're an enemy of God, you're under God's wrath, and God will pour out his wrath upon you for all of eternity. There is doom for your soul. There is an impending doom, and you are in trouble. It is reminding that person that you are in a burning house and get out. That is loving. But God, know this, God doesn't save good people. He saves bad people. In fact, he loves to save the most dirtiest, most horrific, most despicable kinds of people out there. And if you're one of them, he will save even you. 
Are you a fornicator? Flee to Christ. Are you a pornographer? Turn to Jesus. Are you a criminal? Let the Savior cleanse you. Are you a drunkard? Fall at Christ's feet today. God has showed his love to you by creating you, by feeding you, by giving you air to be, breathe, by protecting you, by br- bringing you here today providentially to hear this message. He has done this out of love. He protects you. He's provided a way of salvation for you. He's revealed himself to you. And he doesn't want you to hate him. He wants to save you. But know this, this love is temporal. It only extended no further than the day of judgment. When you face him and, and that love will turn in, that love you'll see is a love that is, is wrath and he will pour it out upon you for all of eternity. Don't reject this marvelous message of God's kindness. The king, he stands ready to pardon. The judge is willing to dismiss the case. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believe in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Not only will God forgive you, but he will adopt you as a child and become your heavenly father, and he will pour his love into you, and you will then be able to love with a God kind of love, and you will be brought into the most loving family that you will ever find. And in closing... I pray this morning that we cry out with Paul as he, as, he, as he cries out in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through the Spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ which surpasses the knowledge that may be filled up with all fullness of God. May we love like God today. May we make the invisible visible. If you do not know Christ, repent and believe. Let's pray. Father, you're so good to us. You're good to us even when we are at our worst. You, before time began, you thought of us. You knew our lives. You knew that we were, there was nothing good in us, but yet you sent Christ to come and be our propitiation, to be our expiation, and to save us. What love. Father, may we understand that your love has been poured out into us. And may we glorify you in all that we do. May we love one another. Father, help us to to, to look at our hearts and to see where we have gone wrong. And maybe we've not loved our brothers and sisters in Christ as we should. Help us to repent and and, and to turn from those things and to love one another despite the vileness. Help us, Father, this morning. We need your help. Help us to make the invisible visible. I pray for the lost. I pray that they see your love and they cry out to you in repentance and faith, and they are brought into the most loving family there is, and that they are seated and adopted into the family of God. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.